Hello, and welcome to the In Session Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Etzler, joined in studio this time by News Post state government reporter, Samantha Hogan. Samantha, how are you doing? I, I know we're coming to everybody a little bit late, but sometimes that's how Annapolis goes, I guess. Yeah, we're back in Frederick, um, which is great because um, it was a really, really busy yeah. week in Annapolis. And I'm going to say really twice because I know I tell you every week it's busy. <laughs> um, but uh yeah, we just couldn't even squeeze this in on Friday, so I'm so happy that we're looping back to everyone on Monday. Um, yeah, should we start off with uh, some pretty big news that came yeah. out of the House? Yeah, right. It, it sounds like there's been some progress made on the uh, $15 minimum wage bill, so can you tell us a little bit about what happened? That was Friday, right? Yeah, so on Friday morning, the House of Delegates uh, passed the $15 minimum wage bill, um, which uh, passed with uh, 96 uh, people voting in support of it and 44 um, voting against it. Um, this will phase in a $15 minimum wage between 2020 and 2025 starting at $11 and working all the way up to $15 with an annual increase. Um, This will not include tip workers, uh, which we had originally thought would that uh, got uh, deleted during the committee's amendments to the bill. Um, And then uh, the Frederick representatives were actually split on this. I think that's uh, pretty obvious to anyone that's following state politics, but the Republicans voted against it and the Democrats uh, voted in support. Um, Delegate Jesse Pippi and Dan Cox in particular told me that they were opposed to the bill before the vote because of its possible effects on the economy. Uh, Delegate Dan Cox uh, runs a law firm up in Emmitsburg and he told me it could affect the number of college interns he can hire in the summer. And Delegate Pippi um, had been reached out to by a local adult daycare uh, center that relies on Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements uh, for the majority of its revenue, and it could not readily adjust to this uh, kind of minimum wage increase. Uh, So they were concerned about that. Um, Delegate uh, Jesse Pippi also made the argument to me that the minimum wage is not supposed to be a livable wage. And this is something that we see our delegates um, and our senators pretty split on uh, because Senator Ron Young has told me on many occasions uh, that you know, $15 is not a livable wage, and that's not enough money to work and live in Frederick County. So there, you know, there's these fundamental differences on how you view the minimum wage. Um, The bill still has to get through the Senate. Um, It has not come out of committee at this time. So it definitely could be handled differently than in the House. We'll have to see how the two bills end up being reconciled and whether it even reaches the Senate floor, but I think it will. Right. Yeah. And the Senate debate will be pretty interesting on that, too. Obviously, though, there's still a supermajority there of the the Democratic Party, and they seem to be in support of this. So I would expect maybe we could probably see some support in the I, Senate as, as I well. I think we'll definitely see it at least reach a debate, um, and it's definitely going to come out of committee because the two caucuses for the two chambers, um, actually, sorry, the Democratic caucuses um, in each chamber have said that they support uh, moving a towards a $15 minimum wage. So it's going to be in the details, really, I think is where we're going to see the differences. Right. And I want to move on because um, we we talked, um, maybe it was last week, uh, well, the last the last episode that we did about the handgun review permit board and a, and a bill that would essentially repeal that board and turn the ability to um, file an appeal to get your handgun license back 
to a different entity. Where do we stand with this bill now? Yeah, so this is causing a lot of controversy. And actually, we're going to have um, this, both of our Frederick County uh, senators um, having a chance to weigh in on this. Uh, the Senate essentially decided last week, after a lengthy debate, to assign um, a bill to repeal this board, which handles appeals from people that have applied for a concealed handgun permit and did not get the response that they wanted from the Maryland State Police uh, to challenge that decision. Um, so they have decided, the Senate has decided to assign that bill to repeal that board to the Executive Nominations Committee and the Judicial Proceedings Committee. Um, so Senator Ron Young is the current chair of Executive Nominations, which was created to evaluate the governor's nominations for positions that require Senate approval. And a few weeks ago, the committee voted down Governor Hogan's three nominations for the board, in part due to the rate that the overall um, that the board overall overturns um, Maryland State Police concealed handgun permit decisions. Um, it's estimated to be around uh, 90% or higher um, for those overturning Maryland State Police decisions. Uh, Senator Young told me that the board has discussed uh, over uh, repealing the board many on several occasions, and he believes that uh, the board will ultimate uh, that his executive nominations committee will ultimately uh, vote to dissolve this board and instead send all the appeals for handgun permits uh, to the Office of Administrative Hearings. Um, there was debate on the Senate floor, however, because the executive nominations is not explicitly assigned to hear legislation, which this repeal bill is, um, unlike the other standing committee's judicial proceedings um, on which um, our other senator, Michael Huff, serves, actually took a crack at uh, whether or not to repeal the review board last year. And they created this alternative avenue of the Office of Administrative Hearings as a second level of appeals. Um, so uh, he works very closely with the chairman of his committee, which is Senator Bobby uh, Zirkin from Montgomery. And um, he actually seemed a little bit of exasperated to see this debate returning again in the 2019 session and suggested that the bill just instead come to the floor for the whole body to decide on rather than dragging his committee into another debate. That ultimately didn't happen. Um, and as uh, Senator Michael Huff told me, there's concern that the decision has already been made and that the executive nomination uh, committee wanted control so that it could get rid of the board. And interestingly enough, the Senate president it also sits as an ad hoc member on that board. So there's a lot of heavy hitters on there, along with the minority leader. Um, there's like 19 personalities on there. Um, so it will definitely be interesting to see the way that vote goes. What was the justification for uh, giving it to the executive nominations, given the uh, debate regarding that they aren't explicitly assigned to hear legislation. So the argument was is that they've actually heard a bill one other time and the number of times that this board has this body has already debated about the validity of the uh, handgun permit review board. So um, they feel like they are already one foot um, you know, through the door on discussing this. And the repeal is actually coming from the executive nomination committee's vice chairwoman. So, um, and like I said, there's a lot of heavy hitters on this. The Senate president ultimately has the discretion to decide where bills go. He sits on this board. It's also a democratically majority board. So, you know, there's lots of layers to this. Mm -hmm. There's definitely some politics that are playing into this. Uh, there's concern that the governor, this board, has the handgun permit review board has, you know, been influenced by politics. And anytime you have a Republican governor coming in, you're going to see more um 
pro-gun um, individuals be put on that handgun board. Um, if you have a Democratic uh, governor, you might see, uh, you know, some more restraint. Um, so the argument is to take politics out of this. I think we're seeing a lot of politics be put into it, though, right. as we debate it. You you mentioned that uh, I think it was Senator Bobby Zirkin who uh, was feeling a little bit exasperated. I got to imagine Michael Huff is in, is in the same seat with this just because it seems like based on last year or, yeah, I guess it was last year, they kind of made this compromise that, like, you can have this kind of addition. Yeah, and there was wide support for it, but then there's been this, like, stewing anger is how uh, Senator Huff called it to me about people that are upset that the board wasn't repealed. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, lots of politics. Interesting. interesting. (laughs) And and we have another bill um, that that was in committee again, or or was in committee on Friday, uh, and, and that was, I believe it's Delegate Karen Lewis Young's bill, uh, a right to die bill. She she um, is a, a sponsor on okay. it, but she, it's not her bill okay. specifically. No, this is something that she's definitely supported uh, for three sessions now, and was excited to see actually make out of committee. And that's an end of life option act. It's also called um, death with dignity, medically assisted suicide, depending on what side of the debate you're on. But essentially, what happened is uh, it was jointly assigned to two um, House committees uh, this session, including the Health and Government Operations Committee along with the Judiciary Committee. Now, Frederick County, interestingly enough, has four individuals that serve on this board. Um, That's more than half of our delegation. Um, So uh, what this is, is it's a new draft of this uh, bill that we've seen arise on multiple sessions. And so um, what happened is the bill got a joint hearing, and then it also had a joint discussion and amendment period on Friday. And the two committees combined uh, gave it a favor recommendation. Now, uh, Delegate Dan Cox was not pleased with this because he actually filed a formal request with the chair of judiciary before the meeting to split the vote so that each uh, committee would vote separately. If this had happened, judiciary would have had uh, voted down the bill. It had a very slim one vote tilt opposing the bill. Um, instead, the overall majority swung in favor of the bill. Um, now, I, I do want to clarify, this is not um, uh, an end-of-life option for everyone. This is a um, exclusively for terminally ill patients who have less than six months to live, who must make um, repeat oral and written requests to an attending physician to request medication that they can then opt to self-administer that would um, uh, accelerate the end of their life. Uh, Delegate Jesse Pippi and others debated at length on Friday whether um, a technical element of the bill uh, was uh, ethical and moral, which was uh, how the death is actually recorded on the death certificate and whether that was accurate um, because and if it was protecting the state's ability to collect data on who was using um, this new right. Um, because essentially the underlying condition would be the lead cause of death on the certificate rather than suicide or, you know, some uh, or self-administered medication. So, uh your your cancer. Uh, so you, if somebody has cancer, they wouldn't go down as somebody who did a medically assisted death. They would go down as a cancer death. They would go down as a cancer death. Now, there is this other um, element of the bill that requires a physician's statement, which um, the people that were in favor of the bill argued was, you know, enough to for the state to collect data. Um, but, you know, the, the argument uh, got pretty fundamental, which was the idea, you know, if you die of a gunshot wound, you don't die of the cancer that um, was underlying uh, before you were shot by the gun, you were shot by the gun. Now, some might see that as, you know, putting too black and white on a, on a gray situation. 
Um, but uh, ultimately, the amendment failed. And so the underlying condition would still be the lead cause on a death certificate. But there's a lot of physician discretion on this. So as I said, we have four uh, Frederick County um, delegates that actually sit on this board. So uh, Delegate Karen Lewis Young and Delegate Ken Kerr did vote in favor of this, while uh, Delegate Dan Cox and uh, Jesse Pippi voted against it. So what was the, you mentioned the argument, that, and this is a not a great comparison, to be frank. Who, whose argument was it that if you have cancer and die of a gunshot wound, that it wasn't the cancer that killed you. It was the like who? So actually, uh, Delegate Jesse Pippi brought okay. this up, and that was you know. It's not necessarily comparing apples to apples. It's right? not. It's because not. If you do the medically assisted suicide, it's presumably because of the terminal disease. Yeah, and actually, you know, then the Democrats actually flipped this argument around, and they're like, "Well, this is you know, this is a more." less traumatic way to die because they are seeing individuals who have terminal illnesses opting to either shoot themselves or to park their car in their garage and, you know, leave the motor running. And that's much more traumatic to your family to actually commit suicide and have an individual find you rather than um, being prescribed a medication that will ease your passing and you can choose, you know, opt for when and where. And Okay, um, so his his comparison was more as like a a suicide by... Yeah, and I think he was trying to, you know, add some black and white comparison, you know, or when we're talking about someone that has cancer and is shot by a gun, you know, the lead cause is the gunshot wound. Um, But I think there's a lot more nuance Mm -hmm, in this mm -hmm, conversation. Um, And we also had some big news uh, again. Friday was a big day. It was. It (laughs) Um, it was. (laughs) It it sounds like we we have a map now for the 6th District that's going to go to the governor. So we have a proposed map um, because technically uh, there's still some layers that this needs to get approval for. But yes, many of you will remember um, that the governor uh, formed an emergency commission on 6th District gerrymandering at the end of last year, which was to respond to a uh, federal uh, court opinion. Uh, that Maryland needed to redraw its sixth district ahead of the 2020 election. Um, so on Friday, we got those new lines um, that had, uh, and the new boundaries. Uh, would go in effect for the 2020 election, like I said. And what it would happen is Frederick County would return completely to the 6th District, along with the southern portion of Carroll County and the northwestern portion of Montgomery County. The map that they selected was actually a public submission that came from a gentleman named Stephen Wolf, who has... Um, after some research I found out, is actually a writer for The Daily Cause, which is a liberal organization that uh, works to elect Democratic candidates. The organization claims, however, that it takes a neutral stance on redistricting. Um, However, it appears that none of the redistricting commission thought to look up uh, Stephen Wolf before they actually selected um, his map. So it's just an interesting layer to all of that. Um, Wolf is a redistricting buff. He's looked nationally at some of the worst gerrymandered uh, gerrymandered districts. He's actually submitted maps before, including one in Pennsylvania, which heavily influenced how the court redrew that map. Um, And then he decided to uh, submit to the Maryland one as well, which was ultimately selected on Friday. Um, He told us that he tried to limit the impacts on the adjacent districts, which was also one of the underlying principles that the uh, redistricting commission wanted to do. And uh, that was, he said, in keeping with legal opinions in similar cases where if you're going to redraw a district and only one district, then you should limit those impacts. Um, He did do some recalculations of past elections after after he had drawn them. And he did find that the Republicans could have potentially won the sixth district 
had the map change in 2013 not been as uh severely gerrymandered as it was. Um, However, another interesting fact that I just came across on Sunday night is the Baltimore Sun actually um, uncovered that two of the members... um, Uh, did not meet the strict criteria of Governor Hogan's executive order. One was registered as a lobbyist and one was actually registered to vote outside of Maryland in Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. Those two individuals have since resigned. I'll tell you, I attended every single one of those meetings. There wasn't uh, that wasn't a malicious attempt by either of those individuals. There was always thoughtful conversation. Um, The two chairs have accepted their resignations. Um, Will those two spots be filled? I'm not positive at this time. The Baltimore Sun article did not say um, something that we're definitely willing to follow up for on for our readers. Uh, Neither of the individuals that resigned were um, from Frederick County or um, but, you know, it is um, unfortunate to see, you know, the selection of a map and then two members automatically resign. And then to find this interesting um, just information about who drew the map and how none of them really knew that he was attached to this liberal organization. We're going to have to see how the governor responds to that, how the courts respond to that, and um, you know, ultimately how the general assembly responds to this as well. Yeah. Do you do you get a sense? I mean, based on your reporting, this guy seems to be playing a pretty, uh, you know, playing it playing it down the middle. I guess. Do you get a sense that they're worried about perception, though? Because this could be perceived as, oh, okay, well, a guy who writes for a liberal organization drew this map. Chances are, it's going to benefit. The organization, like the side of the organization he writes for. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's possible that the public could definitely perceive it that way. That was my automatic concern. I spoke with Walter Olson, um, who is the co chair. Um, he works for the Cato Institute. He's a registered Republican. Um, he actually lives here in Newmarket. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that, you know, it was the best solution that they saw for uh, the issue of gerrymandering. He seemed to follow the guidance of the executive order in the courts, which was to make it geographically compact, to follow natural boundaries of municipalities and uh, counties. You know, some of the best practices that people are looking for when it comes to redistricting, he was definitely trying to achieve those. He met our population requirements that is federally mandated. So he definitely had really strong characteristics And, you know, he's working for this Democratic organization, but he shows afterwards that it actually swung it back to the historic Republican precedent that had been true for the 6th District. So there's a lot of things to weigh. I don't think there was malicious intent with it, but it's just really interesting that we have this nonpartisan. We the governor goes so far to try and form a nonpartisan organization, and then they pick someone with definitely a partisan <laughs> tie. Right. So I I just don't know what optically that says, um, and I, I you know it's up to the public and the governor to decide how they feel about that. Right, right. Um, I I want to move on to another topic, and this is something that if you followed our news post coverage, it's been huge in so many municipalities so far almost every municipality seems to be taking this on just because of what may happen i guess yeah uh but so let's talk about these kind of their i they've been described to me as mini fridges on telephone poles uh they're kind of like these 5g cell phone towers 
Yeah, and actually, uh, the people opposed to them or to wanting greater control how to uh, cite them brought in a, a maximum size box that they coated in silver paint and put some caution tape over it and high voltage warning signs on it just as a visual. And people from the wireless industry said we would never be putting what that is up on a pole, but the sev- uh, 28 square feet, you know, that was a representation of it. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of misinformation in this. There's a lot of passion in this debate. Um, essentially what it is is small uh, cell phone wireless facilities. Um, these are the uh, the the equipment necessary to bring about 5G networks. And so uh, the General Assembly has before it two competing bills, um, one that favors wireless uh, carriers and another that uh, per- gives greater protections to counties and municipal governments to have say over the placement and the price and the aesthetic of these facilities. The Maryland Municipal League has made this their sole legislative priority in 2019. Um, but what we saw is SB uh, 937 sponsored by Senator Catherine Klossmere of uh, Baltimore County uh, supporting uh, one that would grant wireless providers the right not subject to zoning review and approval to install and operate um, these uh, small wireless facilities on poles within the right-of-ways of county and municipal governments. And then you also have SB 713, which is sponsored by Senator Pamela Beidle of Anne Arundel County, um, which uh, would give local governments the authority to charge up to $2,500 or 2% of the gross revenue of these wireless providers to attach to utility poles and give the counties and governments much longer window of time to approve or disapprove of these applications. It could be 180 days, according to their bill. The wireless companies told me they're looking for something much closer to 60 to 90 days. So we are we got a significant gap between what kind of review period we want. Um, this is all centered around building the 5G network, as I said. Um, this network doesn't exist anywhere yet. So um, we have similar facilities that have been put up. Those are for the 4G network. Um, Thermont has cited them on top of poles and on top of buildings. So we've definitely seen very similar things be put up. But what's coming next is the 5G. And why this is significant is because these facilities actually have to talk to each other in order to boost the data network. And so they are going to have to be placed about 100 to 150 feet of each other. So if you think about a city block, I mean, you could have two or three on a single block. Um, And that's why county governments really want some style and aesthetic and some screening ability. But if you talk to someone like AT&T, you know, they're saying that we need to grow our data um, availabilities in our urban areas and our suburban areas, because within the last 12 years, they've had a 470,000 percent increase in their data usage on their network alone so uh, the advent of uh, of smartphones so what you're saying is people are using their phones more people are using (laughs) their phones and so counties want this infrastructure to come but they're also kind of worried about what it could ultimately look like i mean just imagine what a box like that could look like in the historic district of frederick of downtown frederick you know you want some say on where they can be, how they in, in, and what people are going to see, and what kind of visual clutter that could potentially look like. And so, the the interesting thing about this whole debate to me is, is that it doesn't appear to be partisan in nature. These are no, two, it, these are two Democrats from, by Maryland standards, sort of uh, middle of the road kind of purple areas who have proposed these very differing bills. 
Yeah, and I think it's whether or not you want to follow the Federal Communication Commission's strict guidance and uh, just essentially say we need this infrastructure or if you want to side with the counties a little bit more and say, okay, we should have a say over what our communities look like. So I think that's where the divide is. The two groups have been talking to each other. They just could not reach a consensus Mm -hmm. before the General Assembly session. You know, there's a desire to start deploying this technology. Um, so they kind of need to reach a decision this year. It's not really something we can wait to punt on again. Would you say it's possible that these two, the uh, combination of these two bills in some sort could be the solution? I definitely think we'll see one come out of committee, and then I think we'll see some compromises mm-hmm. uh, put onto those bills. I'm not positive what one that's going to be, though, yet. Okay. Interesting. Um, and, and last week... Um, we also found out that uh, Delegate Ken Kerr had a bill forward for uh, uh, regarding correctional officers' um, compens- uh, work compensation, um, and he pulled it, it sounds like. Yeah, he did. And so I uh, this all kind of snowballed very rapidly. What had happened is he hadn't had the conversations he probably should have had with everyone. And so he uh, filed a bill at the request of a constituent who is a correctional officer here in Frederick County. And uh, the, essentially the bill would have increased the number of days that they um, are eligible for worker compensation benefits. And then it also would have expanded some um, hypertension and heart disease uh, preemption uh, to them that they currently don't have. Now, unfortunately, County Executive Jan Gardner did not find out about this until pretty much a few days before the hearing on the bill was supposed to take place. And he she requested that uh, Ken Kerr come in so that they could actually discuss it because risk management um, for the county had kind of flagged this as a potentially huge expense. They're saying that this could potentially cost the county $640,000 annually, which is obviously no small uh, drop in the bucket. And so um, after that conversation with uh, risk management and County Executive Jan Gardner, uh, Delegate Ken Kerr did decide to withdraw the bill. They need to get better numbers to figure out how many people could potentially file claims because of these expanded um, rights for correctional officers and then what that ca- uh, that cost would be. Uh, uh, County Executive Jan Gardner said that she would prefer to give that money as raises <laughs> to our correctional officers. They are currently in um, a contract renegotiation with the sheriff's office. Um, Delegate Ken Kerr doesn't think that it will ultimately cost as much as risk management is initially thinking. So he, both sides want to do some better calculations um, and potentially come back next year, uh, Delegate Ken Kerr said, with um, another bill that would be more palatable. Mm-hmm. And and it sounds like the that sheriff, uh, Chuck Jenkins, was he in support or or not fully supportive of the bill? Or when when they saw the price tag, uh, neither County Executive Jan Gardner nor Sheriff Chuck Jenkins uh, were in favor of it. Also, Sheriff Chuck Jenkins told me he wasn't positive this was needed. So it seems like an uphill battle. He's a uh, delegate concur if he wants to bring this back is going to have to, you know, definitely change mm. some important minds. Right. Okay. Interesting. And we'll we'll watch out for that. Uh, that that's obviously something that could that could be brought up next session. So uh, something for us to to remind ourselves about next year um but going forward again we probably don't need to say it's going to be a busy week this week 
but there are going to be some things on on the plate. So what are you looking forward to this week? Yeah, so um, there's the potential that uh, Senator uh, Cheryl Kagan's uh, styrofoam slash plastic foam, we don't need to get into that whole debate again, uh, but it's possible that will come up for a final vote in the Senate this week. Um, and the only change that has happened to that bill is that um, it, Senator Kagan's uh, amendment to uh, delay the start date to from January 1st of 2020 to July 1st of 2020 Um has happened with it, but we're expecting still a final vote potentially this week on that in the Senate. Um, the Frederick County delegation is actually meeting later today to decide uh, which bond requests it will move forward with. Um, over a month ago, multiple organizations visited the delegation to plead their cases from everything from historic preservation to inclusive playgrounds to drinking water infrastructure to bocce uh, <laughs> pitches in Baker Park. So we'll have to see what... Um, proposals um eventually might get funding um there is a tight budget this year uh, uh department of Legisla legislative services has asked for cuts to the current budget has asked for cuts to next budget so the wish list might be very long mm -hmm. the funding might be short so um it's going to be some tough decisions tonight um the other thing is just votes in general um senator uh, senate president uh thomas v mike miller uh told his chamber to stop taking so long on bill hearings and to make time for voting and um, at the end of the week there appeared to be an uptick in voting in the standing committees in both chambers we're about a week uh, a week and a half past the halfway mark so the clock is starting to tick down uh, to get those bills out of committee onto the floor for debate for amendments and just making sure it has time to get through both chambers Nothing like rushing through the committee to rush through the debate and the vote. Great. <laughs> That's right. Because, you know, like they lay over some of these debates sometimes. And so the process is not bam, 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 day after day. You know, it really can just it, it takes hours to work through these legislation. And I think we want our elected officials to take their time on some of these tough questions. But at the end of the day, we're tied to a 90 day session. Right. Whether it's right or wrong, I guess that's what, what we have to deal with. Yes. Um, Samantha, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we'll talk hopefully at the end of the week this time. I would hope so, yeah. Uh, great. Thanks, thanks so much.